0: So last week, we were talking about the Great Commission, and we said that we've been sent out with the authority of Jesus, and so this week, it's to do what? what we've been sent out with his authority, what exactly are we supposed to do? What is the actual mission of the church? I'm going to do something uh, from from this point forward so you can get used to this. You know how like in a message I'll be like, all right, flip to Luke chapter 4, flip to Exodus chapter 3, and I've already marked it, and so I'm ready to go before you even get there. In the bulletin, Debbie's going to start printing this, so you see the scripture that I'm going to have you flip to in the message. So if you want to pre-mark those places so you can flip there quicker and I don't have to get annoyed with you for your lack of knowledge of where these books are in the Bible, then that would be great. Okay, so you've got that in front of you and you know what we're gonna, where we're going to be. All right, so it was um, this last Monday because our trash goes on Tuesday. Um, I'm in the house and there's that, uh, after we've taken the totes out, after Jenny has taken the totes out to the edge of the road, I noticed that there's a sack of kitchen trash that is there. It's that one straggler of a trash bag and Jenny is not there that evening and so I think, well, I could wait for her to get home and go ahead and take it out, but I'll go ahead and take one for the team and take the trash out. So I go back to the room and into the closet to get some shoes to put on to walk out to the edge of the, and I grab the flip-flops, the flip-flops that are in the closet. So I put the flip-flops on, and I'm maybe four or five steps before it starts to happen. And if you've got a pair of flip-flops in, the, in your house, you probably know what I'm talking about. The sand from all of the crevices in the flip-flops begins to surface, which is insane because I don't remember the last time we went to a beach. Like we just, we're not beach people, but there's still sand. It might have been Mississinawa a couple years ago that we were there, but sand starts to surface. And sand is really annoying. You know that whenever you go to the beach, you find it in crevices in your body and places it should not be. And you have no idea how it got there. All right. Sand still in the flip-flop. So I get to thinking about this as I'm preparing this message. There's a point to me telling you this story. And that is this. If you go to the beach, this isn't angled properly, is it? It's making me uncomfortable. Is it better like... Is that better? That makes me more happy. What? Reed, I'm not concerned about you. You don't pay attention to the message anyway. So anyway, back to what we... Sorry. Um, If you go to a beach, you have all of this sand that's there. Sand, as far as you can see, it's annoying, it's free, it's utterly worthless. You could take buckets of that stuff, and one wave of the ocean comes in, fills up the hole, and nobody knows any different. Free sand everywhere you want to be. Now, a few years ago when we were doing a little play area for our kids, it been several years ago, we priced the various things that you can put on the, on the bottom of that. You ever price playground sand? It isn't free. It's the same worthless stuff, but if you put it in a bag and sell it at Lowe's, they're going to charge you $3 for every square foot of that sand, right? Okay, a couple years ago, our sand filter on the pool went out. You ever seen what they do with that? It's the same stuff, but when they package it for a sand filter, they charge you double what they charge you for sand for your playground. Now we're up to $6 a square foot. Then, if you take just a handful of that stuff and glue it to a piece of paper, they're going to charge you, as much as they charge you for a square foot, for a little piece of paper of sandpaper. All it is is the same stuff glued to a piece of paper. But now that stuff that was completely free and worthless is now costing me quite a bit of money for just a small little portion of it. And then you ever put a shock collar on your dog and send him out into the yard? You ever seen a computer, your laptop? It's got microchips in it. You know what a microchip is made of? Sand. Do you know how expensive that sand is that they put? Okay, so what is the point of all of this? Why did I start with the story of the flip-flops and the free sand? Because here's the point. It's the same substance, but the purpose of that sand makes all the difference in the world. Its value is dependent upon the purpose that it's being used for. How's that for an analogy, right? Because you know where this is going. Every single one of us has a worth, a value to the kingdom of God, the service that we render to the kingdom of God. It is entirely predicated upon and it collectively hinges on our purpose or our mission. Jesus has a lot of fans. He has a lot of followers. He has a lot of people that know peripherally about Jesus, and they can quote some of the things that he says, and they can tell everybody, "Ah, he's a good moral teacher. Yeah, I kind of want to be like him. But their worth to the kingdom of God is like a beach full of sand. In fact, he says it in Luke, he refers to it as salt that's lost its saltiness. It doesn't do anything. It's not worth anything to the kingdom of God because it's not following its mission. Have you ever wondered, maybe I'm the only one that wonders about this, why is it that when we come to Christ and we're baptized and we become a believer that we're not raptured right then? I mean, that's it, right? We sealed the deal. We're going to heaven. Why not take us to heaven right then? I mean, it'd be a little weird. You baptize somebody and then you just got clothes left over. But if they, if you took some, if they, if, if, why not take us to heaven? Because we're secure at that point in time. There's a reason I'm asking this question. If you're on social media, you have probably seen this video. It's making its rounds on the various social media things. Uh, this is a uh, kid that goes out in his yard and it's a security camera on their home that picks up all of this happening. Kid's going out in the yard to play with his dog, the German shepherd, and a stray dog from down the road gets loose and comes after Have you seen this? New York Post posted this. This is the video clip from the New York Post. Take a look if you haven't seen it. I need to point this out dogs are awesome um you know what a cat would have done in that situation (laughs) it had been sunning itself in the driveway oh look at me and then as the kids getting mauled it would have said oh it's a shame that's the way a cat would have handled it i think we all understand this okay you watch that video and everybody's praising the dog oh we got to go get a german shepherd german shepherds are awesome right but i sit there and say first of all the kids playing down by the road What exactly are mom and dad doing in this? And you notice mom comes out to help the kid after the dog has been scared away, after the German shepherd has done that. And maybe that's not fair. Maybe they didn't know the kid was running out there. But you watch this and you wonder that. And why do we wonder that? Because there are places that you would not ever choose to send your children. I would think we all understand that. There are places that if you knew represented imminent danger to your children, they were going to go to a place where everybody hated them, that everybody was after them, that everybody opposed them, or there are vicious dogs coming at them. You wouldn't choose to send your children there because you love your children. We all understand that principle. And yet, I want you to look at what Jesus, what Christ, who loves us more than we love our own kids which that's difficult to even comprehend, that he loves me more than I love my three children. Unbelievable to think of that. I trust it. He loves me more. Look at what he knows. In fact, look at what he tells his disciples that he loves. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. He tells them again, I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, then they're going to persecute you also. So you follow why I'm a little confused by this. I would never willingly send my children into a place where I know people hate them and are going to persecute them because I love them. I would not want that for them. And yet, I'm told that Jesus, who loves me more than I love my kids, is willfully sending me into that Am I misstating that? Because look, we know that that's what Jesus knows about the world, but what did he choose to do? That first passage. Flip to John chapter 17. John 17, this is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to the Father. He's speaking of his disciples. He's praying for his disciples. And look at what he says. Pick it up in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. And then verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission. Nobody disputes that. And he is saying, just as, the, just as you, Father, sent me, I'm sending my disciples on a mission. Well, those are the 12. But what do we know? We saw last week in Matthew 28, he says, "'Lo, I'm with you always, even until the very end of the age.'" He's commanding us to go and make disciples as disciples. The age is not ended. In Matthew 28, we are given the same command that he is talking about here in John 17 to those specific disciples. You and I have been sent on this mission as well, and he emphasized, as what we stressed last week, that that mission hinges on his authority. It all rests on his authority, but I feel like, and I don't know, many of you are too polite to say this, I feel like I kind of left something hanging out there. What does that mean, that I go into the world with his authority? I just am overly confident? Is that exactly, what exactly does that mean? Here's what I'm trying to get across. I thought about it all week. This is what I'm getting at. God has not sent us out to conquer so that Jesus can reign. He has not sent us out to conquer the world so that we can install his son as reigning over the world. We have not been sent out to conquer so that Jesus can reign. He sends us out in the name of Jesus, the one who has already conquered. It all belongs to him. He has all authority. You and I go into the world with the confidence that he rules all things. We are merely proclaiming that to the world, to a world that maybe hasn't accepted that reality. Get this idea out of your head. We are not going out as crusaders to conquer the world so that he can reign. That is not at all what it means to go out with the authority of Jesus. We go because he reigns. We go with confidence that he sits on the throne and the world needs to know that. Because there's implications to that. If it helps think of ourselves as adrian is she here this morning gosh darn it that's a shame adrian sauki for the uh, the live nativity that we did i was a shepherd for a couple nights in a row out here and probably i don't know 758 times i saw her adrian sauki come down the hill and she was mouthing the words of the angel that was announcing the coming of the lord and the whole time she mouthed those words behold i bring you good news a great joy she's doing this with her fingers I don't know if any of you saw that, but Jenny and I commented both nights, what is she doing? It's like she's calling for tips as she's standing there doing this. I need money. But that's what I want you to think about. That's what we do. We are proclaiming the truth that the king has come and he reigns. That's it. John says, uh, this is Jesus speaking in the gospel of John. This is his way of covering the great commission. Peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you in my name. The mission of the exalted Jesus then is going to be carried out through his disciples. And we are his disciples. But here's the key question. And this is where I want to be this morning. That was all an introduction. This is where I want to be this morning. How does the exalted Christ carry out his mission through us? Because there's a lot of answers to that. You'll hear a lot of very strong theological voices that are going to really come down. And I'm going to simplify it into one of two camps. One says we go out and we carry forth the mission of Jesus by doing what he did. We must serve humanity. We must be servants of humanity. In all situations, in all circumstances, we serve them. And the other side says the true mission of the church sure will serve, but the true mission of the church is to bear witness to humanity of what Jesus has already done. And you will see divides in churches and even entire denominations. What really is is the mission of the church? Which of those are we supposed to focus on? Which of those are we supposed to actually do? I want you to look at this one for a second. This idea that we are called to serve humanity, where it comes from, one of the, the key verses that's used, if you flip to Philippians 2, this is Paul speaking to a group of Christians, obviously, and look at what he says. I'll pick it up in verse 5 and go through 11. I know you know this passage, but this is what's used to justify the idea that our role as a church is to be servants of humanity. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what did he do? He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So the argument is, that's what you do. You make no assumptions. You serve humanity. Let them do and say whatever they will. You serve as Jesus did. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That's the argument. We serve humanity as Jesus did. This is John Stott. I've learned a lot from John Stott. He's written some really great stuff. John Stott says, therefore, based on that passage, our mission as a church is like his to be one of service. We are sent into the world like Jesus to serve. That's the point. Now, the accuracy of that statement, in my estimation, completely hinges on what that word right there means. What do we mean by we are sent into the world to serve? I can agree with this statement if we interpret the word serve in a particular way. I want to try to explain what I'm saying. There is no question that Jesus met the physical needs of a lot of people. You can't read the Gospels and not see him healing and caring for and and taking care of and taking people in. He healed and he fed and he clothed. And you and I are called to do the same. We are called to do good works. The question is, is that the mission of the church? Or is that peripheral? Is that something we do, but it's not our mission? Because there's a difference between those two things. You can find passages that tell us to do those things, but there's something that I think is off When I read books, there's a book by Gabe Lyons, it's called The Next Christians. And this is the social justice movement of Christianity that says the church is losing people because it's been too focused on evangelism and telling people that they're wrong, and what we need to do is serve people, and when we serve people, that will draw more people to Christ. And Lyons writes, every moment of his ministry, Jesus' ministry, is spent with the poor, sick, helpless, and hurting. So that's where we should be. Okay, there's a little bit of a problem with that. And the problem is, it's not true. That's not a true statement. In fact, it's not even close to being a true statement. It sounds nice that every moment of his ministry, he's spending with the poor and the sick and the helpless and the hurting. Remember those words. Jesus spent excessive amounts of time, far more time than with anybody else, with his disciples, and his disciples were none of those things. They weren't poor, and they weren't sick, and they weren't helpless, and they weren't hurting. He spends the majority of his time with his disciples. He spent time with wealthy people like Zacchaeus. Went to his home, if you remember. He was up in the tree. He says, come down and go to your house. There's a song about it. He reclined at the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. You remember this, yes? And they're pretty well-to-do. It's not every moment of his ministry is spent there. And Jesus spends a great deal of time alone in prayer. So it sounds nice to say, well, every moment of his life was consumed with the less fortunate, with the marginalized, with the ostracized. It sounds good. But that's not the true testimony of what Jesus was doing while here on earth. And remember, you remember, and this is asking a lot. We were doing the whole be like Jesus, and I did the sermon on uh, time and redeeming our time and what we're supposed to be doing. And I made us all really uncomfortable by pointing out something that we like to overlook, and that is that Jesus many times would leave people in towns unhealed who were wanting attention. You do remember that, right? That there were people that he was healing, and then they go to sleep, and during the night, what does Jesus do? He slips away. You remember this account? And the disciples wake up the next day, and everybody's there to be healed, and they're like, oh, geez, where did Jesus go? And they go, and they look for him, and when they find him, they say, you've got to get back over here. There's people lined up. They're waiting to be healed. they got a fever, all kinds of stuff. This guy's got a weird thing going on with his face. And so they're telling Jesus, you've got to get back there, and what does Jesus say? He knows those people are needing physical healing, but he says what? We're not going back there. We're going over here so that I can preach. I'm not going to go back there. Now, is that because Jesus doesn't care about the physical needs of those people? No, of course not. He's Jesus. But Jesus had a mission. And his primary mission was not one of healing. That wasn't the point of the whole thing. It wasn't his mission to heal the sick and to meet the physical needs or the financial needs of the poor. John made it very clear what Jesus's mission was. And by the way, you can flip to John 3. If Many of you know a portion of this anyway. If you watch football games, they hold up the signs of John three sixteen. But you do know what Satan's going to be trying to do, right? Satan is going to be trying to distract Jesus from his mission. And John is very clear what that mission is. Uh... Yeah. Okay, remember when I said you can mark it so that you don't have a... Here it is, John 3. Pick it up in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then we know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What was the mission of Jesus? To save the world from their sins. That was the mission. That's what he was here for. What drove his ministry was proclaiming the gospel, was announcing his kingdom, and calling other people to repent and to believe. And all of the physical care that Jesus supplies, while important and while kind, it is supplemental to his mission. It's around the periphery of what his mission was. All of those healings testified to his authority. The most obvious example I think I've talked about this before. it's one of the best ones. the dude that's crippled and he's on the mat and his friends lower him down through the ceiling. You remember this, right? And he just drops right in front of Jesus, and they lower him, and what is the first thing Jesus says to that guy? "Your sins are forgiven." And it's at that point that all the teachers of the law lose all control of their bodily functions. They start flipping out. Arr, arr, who's this guy to forgive sins? You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus, I always picture him just kind of rolling his eyes, like, we've got to do this again. He's, what does he say? He says, right, listen, which is easier to say to this guy? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and go? But, what's the next line? So that you may know, I have this authority that you're saying only God can forgive sins. So you know I have the authority to do something far more important than healing this man's physical body to heal him spiritually so that you know I have that authority. Get the mat, go, and the guy picks up the mat and walks out the door. What was the point of the healing? Was it to heal the man? I mean, it's a nice side uh, benefit, but the whole point was to demonstrate only God could heal a cripple like that. Therefore, you saw me do it, and you know I have the authority to do something far more important, which is to care for the spiritual well-being. Nowhere in Scripture do you see Jesus announced going into towns for the sole purpose of healing. He doesn't have shirts printed off of his healing tour of of AD 31 and it's going to Jericho and Jerusalem. That's That's not what he's doing. It's not that he doesn't care and it's not that he doesn't heal, but that isn't what his mission is. And Mark illuminates this reality better than any other gospel writer. He says that Jesus is moved with pity when he sees these people in this difficult way. He doesn't like that they're hurting, and so he will heal them. He's moved by pity. But why was he there in the first place? He came out to preach and teach. That's why Jesus was there. And have you ever wondered? There's a lot of different answers, and I've given different answers for this. One of the common ones that I've given is, well, Jesus didn't want to speed up his time towards his crucifixion. He didn't want things getting out of hand too early. But have you ever wondered when you're reading these passages, Jesus heals a man of leprosy, and he sent him away at once with this warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. And I'm sitting here saying, look, I'm not one to question the savior, but if you're trying to convince people that you're the son of God, it seems like you'd want him to tell everybody. Hey, you just healed me of leprosy. Not anybody can do that. But Jesus tells him not to tell people. And then later, he tells the crowds who see all of his healing, don't tell anybody what I'm doing. Now, of course, the crowds listening to Jesus go out and tell everybody. You won't believe what we just saw. It's kind of like a church thing. You're going to tell somebody, even though you're not supposed to tell someone, well, I'm just telling you this as a matter of prayer. Uh, and then they tell someone else as a matter of prayer. And then before too long, it's put on Facebook as a matter of prayer. And everybody knows about it. That's what's going on here with Jesus. Why not tell everybody? Have you ever thought that maybe the reason is because Jesus was becoming simply overwhelmed by the number of people? Man, if if I hear that he healed somebody of leprosy or a disease and my child gets sick and I don't know what's going on, what's the first thing I'm going to do? Pack it up. We got to get to Jesus. We got to take care of this. And so there's going to be this overwhelming number of people and it pulls his focus away. I got to believe that Satan very much desires to pull Jesus away from what his mission is, which is what? To proclaim the gospel through his teaching, to corroborate the gospel with his miracles, and to accomplish the gospel through his death and his resurrection. That right there is what Jesus was all about. The healing was around the periphery. It was a good thing that he did. This right here is his mission. But then you read passages like this in Luke, and you see this idea of a social liberator. Flip to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, these verses starting in verse 16. Jesus goes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So this is from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, there it is, right? That's social liberator, Jesus, social transformation, taking care of the poor, releasing the jailed, freeing the oppressed, all of that. That's the heart of his mission. He just said, it's accomplished right here in front of your side. That's who I am and what I'm about So if we're modeling ourselves after Jesus, that's what we have to be about. Okay, Scripture is not contradictory. It's not. So this passage, I contend to you, reinforces exactly what I've been teaching to this point. That Jesus' mission was the proclamation of the gospel. What do I mean? I'm not being pedantic, okay? I'm not just playing with words. That's what pedantic means. Several of you looked at me like, what is happening? This is a vocabulary lesson as well, okay? I'm not being pedantic. Look at the context surrounding that word poor. I've, I've been called to proclaim good news to the poor. All right, hold on a second. If the poor here means literal financial poverty, which it might But if it means that, if it's to be taken literally, then all of the other things in that passage have to be taken literally as well. All of those other descriptors, which means the Christian mission must be to do what? To literally set prisoners free. You and I, sure, it's great that we come to church, but we should be heading to the Howard County Jail and doing our best to set prisoners free if we want to follow Jesus. And the Christian mission must be, I don't know how we're going to do this, to literally restore the eyesight to the blind. Not sure how, but we're going to try it. And the Christian mission must be holy war in order to end all physical oppression in all places. I'm not suggesting to you that we shouldn't give money to the poor. We're called to do that. And I'm not suggesting to you that we shouldn't seek the the just release of prisoners who have been unrightly and unjustly incarcerated. Of course we should. And I'm not suggesting to you that we should not voice our opposition to physical oppression. What I'm saying to you is this is not what that passage is teaching, is the mission of the church. We understand in this context that all of these things are saying what? What is this referring to? This is all referring to spiritual bondage. And I'm going to contend to you that when it says proclaim good news to the poor, it's also talking about spiritual bondage. It's the only thing that contextually makes sense. If you look down, by the way, in verses 25 and 20, uh, through 27, look at that. He, he references there are many widows in Israel in Egypt, Elijah's time in this, uh, when there was the famine, the drought. Yet, look at verse 26. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman in Syria. Oh, hold on. The widow was poor. Physically, like financially, Naaman was as wealthy as they come. So if these are examples of proclaiming good news to the poor, it is obvious we're talking about spiritual poverty here. Nobody should suggest that caring physically for destitute people is not an important thing for us to do. We should be doing that, but suggesting that that is the primary focus of the church, that we fulfill the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ by being servants in this regard, it ignores this very passage, the one that is often used to support this idea. What do I mean? Go back and look at what the Isaiah scroll says. Everybody look at this. If you got your Bible open, if you don't have your Bible, you're a heathen, but it's okay. I'm going to read this and listen. You tell me what we're commanded to do. Listen for the verbs. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news or proclaim good news to the poor. What's the verb? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Proclaim is the verb. Flip it over to verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm suggesting to you that the meaning of the passage is clear. It's clear what the mission of the church is, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in every corner of the earth. The Great Commission, we saw this last week, it's the culmination of Matthew's book. So Matthew tells this whole story of Jesus and all of his teachings and all of his healings and all of the stuff and his relationships that he does, and all of those threads are tied up at the very end in those verses, what we call the Great Commission. It all gets tied together. So you got the whole story of Jesus' life, and it's all sealed with this Great Commission at the end end. And what follows Matthew 28? If you turn the page, what follows Matthew 28? I know you're going to say Mark 1. You're missing it. Obviously, I get that that physically in your Bible Mark 1 will follow. But the gospels all tell the same story. They're telling the story of Jesus's life. The question is, when you get to the end of those books and they all have their version of the great commission, what follows that? you got Jesus getting ready to ascend into heaven. What follows those events, what happens after those events in Matthew 28, is the book of Acts. The book of Acts, which is the story of what? This book will show you what Jesus meant his church should be doing. He stands on the mountain and gives them the great commission, and he's going to ascend into heaven. And you know what the book of Acts is about? It's about the church of Jesus Christ preaching the gospel to the ends of the known earth. That's exactly what Jesus says. The end of Matthew has Jesus ready to leave. The beginning of Acts has Jesus ready to leave. And he says, you disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he says before he leaves. And that's exactly what happens in the pages that follow. I'm not gonna read the entire book of Acts for you this morning, but I'll tell you in Acts chapters two through seven, Jesus is preached in Jerusalem. Exactly what he said they would do. And in Acts chapter 8, you see Jesus being preached in Judea and Samaria. And then two wild events take place. Peter has a vision on a rooftop that tells him this gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's for all people everywhere. You have Paul on the road to Damascus. He he gets confronted by the resurrected Messiah and his life turns around and he becomes the greatest missionary. And what you see in Acts chapter 9 through 27 is Jesus preached to the Gentiles. The message of Jesus preached to the very ends of the earth. Local churches are formed and you have converts who are discipled and you see them built up in the faith and then they are sent out to make more disciples and it all ends with Paul under house arrest that's where the book of Acts ends but even under house arrest you know what it says in Acts chapter 28 he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance I mean this is a guy that was chained to a Roman soldier and what was his attitude His attitude wasn't, well, I guess I can't preach the gospel now. I'm chained to this soldier. No, his attitude was what? I see what you're doing here. This guy's going to get an earful, isn't he? And he preaches the gospel to the guy that's chained to him. And he converts that guy to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is for all of us. It is our marching orders. And Paul is the most significant model of who and what you and I are to be as his disciples going into this world. Which means what? With all that we do. And we will all do many things. Some of you will uh, work for nonprofits. Some of you will head your own charities. Some of you will go out and you'll, you'll I, I don't know what you'll do, but at the forefront of whatever it is that we do as believers, we are commissioned to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what our mission is. That's what we are called to do. And why does this need to remain our top priority? Because it is the only thing that can fix things like this. This last week, I, um, was, this was something entirely different. I wasn't preparing the message at this point in time. I was looking for a story uh, that I could write for a, a website that I write for. And this was uh, a thread that somebody had posted. And I'm confident that at least a few of you in here would know who this is. It's a man who just lost his son, his young son. He wrote these words, Today is not a good day. I can't stop crying. I hurt so bad. I try so hard to not fall apart, but every day it gets harder. I push my feelings down and put on a mask, but I'm a broken dad. A dad that's in excruciating pain because how this feels, but I feel selfish if I say that I just can't handle today. I want to call my mom, but I don't want to burden her at work because I know if my children called me at work explaining they felt like how I do right now, I drop everything and run to them, even risking my job. I don't want to exist, not in a suicidal way, I'm just tired of hurting. I'm exhausted, but I can't and I won't stop. I can't stand to know that there will inevitably be more parents that end up in my shoes. I hate myself. I hate myself for all of the missed opportunities that I took for granted. I hate that I poured blood and sweat and tears into a job, a job that didn't compare to the moments I could have had with my son a job that inevitably proved to me that I was just another cog in a machine that's now let me go. I hate that my life is in shambles and as much as I try to take a step forward, I I get knocked backwards too. Cliché, I know. I just want to feel happiness again. I want to feel the warmth of the sunlight instead of the coldness that has consumed me. Today is not a good day. Christians, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Our mission, church is to bring this man, is to bring a world full of men like this, the peace that comes from salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Don't be distracted.